All right. Well, God's people, we, we want to turn now to God's word in the book of Jonah. I will continue in my series going through the book of Jonah. This will be my second sermon going through chapter 3. So, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, just a little preface before I read the passage. Uh, Jonah's experience of God's grace, uh, being redeemed from drowning and, and uh, being spit out by the great fish, should have made him excited about God's grace to the people of Nineveh. But we're going to see that he had a hardness of heart, and that hardness of heart should challenge us and our attitude towards other people. Uh, John Newton, the famous hymn writer, uh, writer of Amazing Grace, wrote, uh, Alas, the spirit of the elder brother, in the parable of the prodigal son, cleaves closer to us than we are aware. The Lord help us to discover it and to mourn over it. And Newton told a story, a, a company of travelers fall into the pit, but one of them gets a passenger uh, to draw him out of the pit. Now he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illumined will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. In other words, if you've been taken up from the pit, you can't blame other people who fell into the pit or blame them for not getting themselves out of it, but be gracious to them. But we're going to see that Jonah begrudges God's gift to others. It's the way that Augustine defined envy. Uh, Rebecca DeYoung has a book uh, where she talks about envy as sorrow over another's good as excelling my own. Well, we'll see some of these things as we read uh, from Jonah chapter 3. So if you're able now to stand comfortably as I read from God's word in Jonah 3, please stand as we hear God's inerrant and inspired word. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But, chapter 4 says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That is the hearing of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Jonah that uh, is so complex and yet so simple. Our Lord, we pray that you would show us uh, wonderful truths from your word, that your spirit would work in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We thank you that you work in our hearts to uh, take away that heart of stone that would keep us away from you, that would keep us from responding to you in the proper way that, Lord, your Spirit gives us a soft heart that's moldable, uh, that responds with thanksgiving to your word. And we pray that you would shape us and form us by your word, that it might become part of us, that it might influence the way that we act and we think that we might become more and more like you, our great God. Help us to be imitators of God. Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully in us by your Spirit and your word this day and every day of our lives. We pray asking for this blessing through the merit of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, please do have a seat, God's people. Well, I won't recap uh, everything we've heard from Jonah chapter 3. We've been hearing a lot about Jonah, so I'm not going to go back through the whole story, but we talked about some of this chapter already last time. Uh, we talked, for example, about what it means for God to relent and turn back. He who never changes plans ahead of time for this to happen. He plans for Nineveh to repent and then for him to spare them. And they heard Jonah's warning, and Jonah's warning, uh, we should remember what it was. It was a simple message, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And amazingly, the people of Nineveh are cut to the heart. They turn from their sin. Uh, the people turn, they, they heed it, and then it trickles up to the nobles and the ruler and goes out in a proclamation. And Nineveh's repentance should amaze us and astound us. Everybody in the ancient world knew of the wickedness of Nineveh. It's well known, and the king here acknowledges their violence. Everyone turn from the violence that's in their hand. It's something that history bears out. You can see in the British Museum uh, on, on the walls these pictures, ancient pictures, of the brutality of the people of Assyria and the people of Nineveh. So they turn, but we know later on Nineveh and the Assyrians are going to be destroyed. And so we might ask the question, is this short-lived? Uh, we might ask about the strength of their conversion here. Is it true repentance? Uh, are they really believers? Is this like the many revivals of the 20th century where people uh, have what they think is an experience, but then they go and they're not really disciples? What we should see clearly in God's word is that the people responded powerfully to God's word. And verse 10, I think, makes that quite clear. Look at what uh, the, the chapter ends on. It's God's approval. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And friends, we're meant to see their response and know that our response to God and his word should be similar. And as I've been meditating on this chapter, I think two things stand out very clearly as a challenge for us. The first is, how do we respond to God? And then secondly, how do we respond to other people? 
And you're going to see these two things woven together in this chapter and in the story of Jonah overall. These two dimensions, how we respond to God, how we respond to other people. Now, I mentioned last time that warnings that God gives or His people give or His Word gives, these warnings are often things that God uses to keep us on the path that He would have us go down. Uh, They're means uh, for God to direct His people to do what is right, like a road sign on the the road. We're meant to see that, that sign of the curve and know that we should slow down and there's a curve ahead and avoid the danger that's behind it there. And likewise, when we think about Jonah's message to the people of Nineveh, they understood that if Jonah is warning them, there's mercy held out for them. That if Jonah is warning them, there's a chance for them to avoid the danger and the destruction. Jonah 3 is profound in that sense in that it reminds us that you can't write off certain parts of the Bible as being only legal, as being only command, and and not offering any hope. You can preach the gospel from books that are heavy on command, like Amos or Obadiah or Leviticus. You can preach the gospel. You can see the gospel in those pages. Because even when a page of the Bible is full of warning and command, we read it in the greater context. Just as the people of Nineveh comprehended a message of salvation and grace in Jonah's simple warning. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. As Jesus said, all the scriptures point to him. Now, clearly, uh, we need clear statements of God's grace. We need clear statements of the gospel and the good news. We should have a well-balanced diet Uh, in what we hear, the whole counsel of God, the law, the commands, as well as the gospel, the good news, the commands and the comforts. Uh, Unlike that preacher in the movie Pollyanna, if you've seen that old movie, he only preached uh, fire and brimstone, only judgment and law and not gospel. We shouldn't have that, but a well-balanced diet. Now imagine you're Jonah here, though. You've just witnessed divine grace. You've witnessed God's power over a nation, not to kill them as he might have hoped, but to change hearts. And what Jonah witnesses here is really a miracle, isn't it? It's something done only by supernatural power. The the wicked people of Nineveh, known for their extreme violence, like flaying people alive, They've now laid down their spears. They've humbled themselves before the true God. Can you imagine if you were Jonah and you witnessed this? What kind of effect would the revival have on you? Wouldn't it be amazing? We like to hear other people's testimony, and it's sometimes very powerful for us to hear about how God changed someone and brought them to repentance. This has been called the greatest revival in history. It's been said that if The miracle of the fish is great. The miracle of this chapter is even greater. And we're going to get into Jonah's response more next time as we get into chapter 4, but I read that beginning, chapter 4, verse 1, where Jonah takes up a spot looking over the city, and he looks out and he waits for the judgment of God to come upon Nineveh. He waits for that 40 days 
to come by to see if God is going to destroy Nineveh after all. And it's clear that Jonah is rooting for that. He's rooting for destruction. How does Jonah respond to God? How does Jonah respond to other people? Realize that Jonah is a lot like Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. He's proud. He thinks that he's better than those sinners. Jonah wants God to bring justice and only justice to Nineveh. And think about Jonah. After all, he is an insider to God's grace. He's one of the people of Israel. He's one of Abraham's offspring. He's a chosen one. And yet we've been seeing throughout this book that he has just as many reasons to repent of his sins as the people of Nineveh or as the pagan sailors in that ship. He disobeyed God. He ran away. The word came to Jonah and he arose to flee. Can he really claim to be better than Nineveh? What about those pagan sailors? Where is Jonah's confession of sin? We're meant to see a contrast between Jonah's heart, uh, his refusal to repent, and the obedience of everyone else, every single character other than Jonah in this book. Their speedy repentance, their speed to obey the Lord. Jonah, I think, does come around, but his slowness to repent is shameful, and for that matter, so is ours, isn't it? So often aren't we slow to own up to what we've done and the ways that we've sinned against God. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, gave us a key to interpreting Jonah and applying it to our lives. He gave us a lesson of ongoing relevance. Uh, And he reminds us that Jonah is a challenge to us to repent of our sins, to be quick to repent. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus is challenging his audience, will you be slower to repent than Nineveh? Will the people of Nineveh rise up at the judgment and point their finger at you and say, you were slower to repent? What holds you back from owning up to your sin and confessing your sin to the Lord? The first, the very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses in the Reformation is that our life as a Christian is one of daily repentance. Do we cry out with the tax collector, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? I like the illustration I heard that. We are like glow sticks. We need to be broken to be useful. The sailors on the sea in chapter 1, they repent and they turn to the Lord. Nineveh repents and they turn to the Lord. And notice it says they believed God. They responded in faith to his word. And that was something that the Israelites in Jonah's day needed to do as well. It's something that we need to do to believe God, to respond to his word. And Nineveh's belief led to changes in their action. Do we do the same? Do we, do we repent daily? Do we acknowledge our sin before the Lord? 
If we do that daily, it's going to go a long way to keeping us humble before the Lord. So how you respond to God, how you respond to other people, that really sums up the book of Jonah. Jonah responds to God in a certain way, and here he's responding to people a certain way. And God has called Jonah to be a missionary to others. It isn't surprising that Jesus looked at his audience and he warned them to respond to God rightly and to respond to others in a certain way. You can draw these parallels between Jonah and his attitude and the people of Jonah's day and then to Jesus and his audience. What Jesus' audience needed to learn, how they needed to treat people differently, how they needed to respond to God differently. You see, Jonah responded to other people, the people of Nineveh, in the wrong way. He treated them as the enemy. Nineveh didn't deserve God's mercy. And Jonah's like that older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He's like the Pharisees who scoffed at Jesus getting too close to tax collectors and sinners, right? Jonah can't rejoice when the lost are found. And Jonah would not have been the only one in his day. Remember that deep-seated enmity of God's people in Israel and the people of Assyria. Why should other nations be blessed by God, by our God? The Israelites might wonder. Of course, when you ask that question, you're reminded that the exact gospel that God preached beforehand to Abraham is that in your offspring, all the nations would be blessed, and that Abraham's seed, blessing would come to people of all kinds among the world, the Abrahamic promise. So God's people need to look at other people and want them to be blessed through God. And isn't this a lesson that the church needs to hear continually and and relearn? The prophet Jeremiah addressed it uh, in his own day because the church needed to hear it again and again. And instead of saying salvation belongs to the Lord, as Jonah, the way the book of Jonah puts it, Jeremiah chapter 18 points to the fact that God is the potter, that people are his clay. God is the potter, can do whatever he wants as he pleases. Remember what the sailors said in chapter 1, God can do as he pleases. And the New Testament is going to use that same image of the potter and the clay in the same context of the gospel, going out to other peoples, Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9. Later on, if you go home and you want to look at Jeremiah 18, you'll see these parallels between Jonah and Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah is called to arise and go, and he does. And Jeremiah talks of God, of a nation repenting, and God relenting from disaster, doing whatever he wants because the world belongs to him. And the lesson that the church should learn is not to compare ourselves to others and think that you're better than them. Don't obsess about how others are blessed by God, but respond rightly to God yourself. It's like at the end of John's gospel, when Peter and John are talking to Jesus and they're finding out what's going to happen, and Jesus says to Peter, don't worry about his story, you follow me. The bottom line is that if God does this, if he shows grace to 
to Nineveh when they repent, then Israel too should repent and turn from their sins. That's a challenge for us in this book of Jonah. Will we, will we repent as well? If others repent, so should we. And Jonah 3 shows us that God delights in repentance. I love how this book lines up with the parables that Jesus told. For Jesus was convincing his audience that God seeks and saves bad people, the lost. It was a great thing for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners, outsiders that he is transforming by his grace. And God there, in Jesus invited his audience to do the same. And here God is inviting us to do the same. Just as the father in the parable of the prodigal son invites the older brother to come and celebrate he who was lost is now found. The prodigal son is returned. God does the same thing here in Jonah. God didn't give up on Nineveh. He didn't write them off. Those are bad people. Those are violent people. And yet, so often don't we write off certain people in our world and in our day. Sometimes we even look at our own past and we think, I'm too bad. I've screwed up too much. We're quick to write people off as being too wicked. So many Christians today seem even ready to be, give up on our country, to just write it off. But what about our neighbors? Are they worse than the people of Nineveh? Is the church not called to be a lampstand in a dark world? Has God's mercy run dry since the great revival in Nineveh? Jonah prompts us, how do we look at other people? How do you see other people? Remember Jonah's mindset. He looks at these other people as different from himself, as an outsider, as, as the enemy, the world opposed to God and his people. And in the decades after the book of Jonah, that would really be true, wouldn't it? Whatever, However lasting the repentance was in Nineveh here, we know the Assyrians would be a pain for Israel, for God's people. They would be problems. And I've heard it put this way, wouldn't it be better for God just to get rid of these problem people in Nineveh and in Assyria? Jonah sees these people as a problem. And when we see that, we understand the same thing because there are people in our lives that we look at the same way, aren't there? As problem people, not as image bearers of God who need grace, who need the gospel, who need ministry, but as problems, as obstacles, as objects. And when we look at people that way, when we respond to people that way, we're not only being unlike God, ungodly, but we're missing out on sharing God's joy. Like the elder brother in that parable of the prodigal son missed out on sharing in the father's joy when the prodigal returned. I heard it said in a sermon years ago that Jonah's joy is at stake here. Jonah's joy is at stake here. What joy is it that you miss out on when you sin, when you have an ungodly attitude, a sinful attitude that clouds your heart? God cares for his whole creation. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would have them turn from their wicked way and repent 
He's so committed to that that he sent his own son into the world, which is a Nineveh of itself. But he did that because he delights in repentance. He delights in seeking and saving the lost. And so we should ask ourselves, are we like God? Do we rejoice when sinners repent, when the lost are found? Do we delight in repentance? Jesus said in Luke 15, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If there's that joy in heaven in the angels, where's that joy in our hearts? Do we pray for the change of other people, for their conversion, for their repentance? You certainly don't delight in it if you've never prayed for it. If you don't pray for it on a regular basis. Jonah wouldn't be the only one needing to learn this lesson, needing to have joy like God's joy. This would have been something that his contemporaries in Israel needed to learn, the original audience, sometime between the time of Jonah and the the time of the writing of Malachi. But what Jonah needed to learn, others in the church needed to learn. We need to learn it. One scholar writes, The purpose of this narrative, therefore, was to serve as prophetic warning to and condemnation of Israel. They, like the prophet, were quick to rejoice in their experience of God's merciful deliverances, yet slow to be changed by them in such a way that they would fulfill their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a blessing to the nations. In other words, this book challenges the church. If you've been blessed by God, do you use your blessings to bless others? Do you have that outward perspective? If you've received God's grace, don't you want others to receive it as well? In other words, we respond to God's grace by responding to other people in a certain way. There's a hymn that puts it well, expressing what should be our attitude. It says, Oh, strengthen me that while I stand firm on the rock and strong in thee, I may stretch out a loving hand to wrestlers with the troubled sea. If God has cast all your sins into the depths of the sea, why shouldn't you look for others to do the same, for God to do the same for others? Do we pray for the conversion of others? Do we pray for laborers to go out into the harvest? Do we have that attitude of Psalm 67? Oh God, be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, that your saving power be known among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I wonder, before Jonah learned the lessons of this book, could he have sung that song? O God, let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. God is a missionary God who sends that message of reconciliation to his enemies, are we like God? Remember, Paul said in Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children. But instead of being like God so often, we're like Jonah, aren't we? We argue with God because we don't like the way that he responds to other people. Do we pray that the Ninevehs of today would be saved Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, but the Pharisees murmured, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We can face their grumbling and complaining, and we can ask that question head on. 
does Jesus not take sin seriously? Maybe Jonah was wondering that same thing when God spared Nineveh. Does God not take their sins seriously? And the answer is that Jesus and God, they, they take sin seriously. It's the fact that the Pharisees didn't take sin seriously enough. It's that Jonah doesn't take sin seriously enough. He doesn't think of his own sin enough and that of his own people. He takes the sin of Nineveh as the 10,000 talents sin and his own as that 100 denarii sin, that much lesser sin. J.C. Ryle comments on the irony of the Pharisees, and I think it applies to Jonah as well. The thing which they found fault with was the very thing he came on earth to do, a thing of which he was not ashamed. In other words, he came to seek and save the lost. But Jonah's not happy about that. Just like the Pharisees. Jesus made clear that the message of salvation is grace. It's not something that you receive because you deserved it. God forgave a sinful woman, and in her humble gratitude, she anointed his feet with this expensive perfume. She wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who know grace, show grace. The vertical love we receive from God should overflow in the way that we treat other people, our neighbors. Jonah here is, has a hard heart towards the lost, towards Nineveh. He's preaching, and we expect his heart to be in it at least for a brief time. Uh, he's been shown, after all, how wayward he is, right? He's been cast into the ocean. He's shown he deserves death, and God spares him from this. And some people argue that chapter 2 is his conversion, and you can see why. He says some good things there. But there's also some things missing in that prayer. It's like a frank acknowledgement of sin. One commentator says, Jonah's obedience is won by mercy. He goes to Nineveh. But Jonah cannot abide the thought that Nineveh's obedience could be won the same way. In other words, won by mercy. We need to search our hearts and ask how we have that same attitude as Jonah. And we need to hear that principle that James would state so clearly later in history. James 2.13, For judgment is without mercy in one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus, the, the one greater than Jonah, ate with tax collectors and sinners, and he welcomes broken, sinful people like you and me to his table. He always showed mercy in his earthly ministry, and yet he faced judgment without mercy himself. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. There was no mercy for him at Calvary, but unlimited agony that far exceeded what God even threatened Nineveh with. And yet, without the shedding of his blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no good in all of our sighs and tears and repentance. It would never make us right with God. But there's mercy in Christ. And then we see that mercy and we know that our repentance means something. And it leads us to want to show compassion on others. And as you respond to God and His mercy in the right way, and as it leads you to show compassion on others, 
Remember this last point that I want to make. It's that God uses weak and little people to do great things. Consider Jonah's weakness. How God brought great things despite Jonah and his limitations. We hear Jonah's terse presentation of the gospel in verse 4, and we're left wondering, is that all he said? Does Jonah actually say exactly what God wants him to say? He doesn't mention the name the Lord. He doesn't offer any hope, it seems. He doesn't even say, thus says the Lord. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. If that's what you heard from the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, would you really invite your unbelieving neighbors to church? You will be destroyed in a short time. We should ask ourselves, can he really preach to Nineveh without even telling them his testimony, how he's experienced God's redemption, the miracle of the great fish, the storm, the grace that he's just received from God. And yet before we cast stones at Jonah, aren't we so much like him, quick to point out the flaws in other people and not to think about the grace and the mercy that we've received ourselves. And we should remember that we can all be Jonah-like judges. We, can, we find it easy to come in and point out the sins of other people and their flaws and then move along without helping them. That's the easy thing to do. John Newton lamented, The pride of others often offends me and makes me studious to hide my own because their opinion of me depends much upon their not perceiving it. But the Lord knows how this dead fly taints and spoils my best services and makes them no better than splendid sins. And yet here is the amazing, astonishing truth. God powerfully uses this weak and poor presentation of the gospel by Jonah. As weak as Jonah is, God uses this in a powerful way. And this in itself reminds us of the overarching point in the book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from elegant, eloquent messages or eloquent preachers. The God who can use Jonah's reluctant message also spoke, spoke using Balaam's donkey. And he can do powerful things through your weak words and your weak example and flawed example. This is how weak people can preach a powerful gospel. Remember the, the task that Jonah had, the bigness of going to Nineveh. This was an intimidating thing. The city itself is so large. It was a three days journey, but God brought blessings after Jonah's preaching. And so as you consider your calling to be a light for the gospel in your community, to testify to Jesus Christ, remember God can do great things with little people. He's shown this again and again. Don't let your weaknesses and flaws keep you from serving Christ, but rely on the God who raises the dead. If he controls sea creatures, the great fish, he can save with many or with few. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as you bear that message of the gospel to the lost around you, don't just tell them of the message of judgment. 
but tell them of God's grace. Tell them of how you have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and be an example for them in your own repentance. Don't let the people of Nineveh rise up on the last day and condemn you for your slowness to repent. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It is a great challenge to us to repent, Lord, to respond to you in the proper way and to look upon others the right way. We pray that we would not look upon other people as obstacles and objects and as problems, Lord, but to look upon them as people made in your image, precious. Lord, people who are no worse than we ourselves, for we're only saved by your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to have compassion. Help us to love much because we have been forgiven much. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one greater than Jonah, the one who paid for all of our sins and who transforms us by his spirit so that we can indeed be imitators of God. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.